Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Uh, if you're in person or on YouTube, thanks for joining us in worship. Uh, if you're new to North Cross, again, virtually or in person, you can always email us at info at North Cross Church or me at sit at northcrosschurch.com. Uh, also, there's a welcome table out there. Uh, so we'd encourage you, whether you call that the narthex or the lobby or the foyer, there's that place right there would be a table. You can grab uh, a mug and some information. Uh, also, if you're not exactly new, but you still don't really feel plugged in, my encouragement would be to take the next step and start to visit a life group or a few life groups and get involved in a life group. And finally, all of those of you who are here again, we're really glad to be with you all again. We're thankful to be together. Um, and really, let's open up and study the scriptures together. And as we do that, I, I kind of want to um, apologize because there's a sense in which the, the previous uh, sermon of Colossians 2 was this really gorgeous tee-up for this moment. I was talking about the mystery, and, and all of a sudden we have like a, a week off, and then we're back into it. So I'll do the best I can, but two weeks ago now, uh, I told you we were returning to our study of Ephesians, and we're going to look at the Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And if you can remember uh, way back when in the fall, we were saying that Ephesians is, is God's I have a dream speech. It's his dream for his world and really for his church and the community that it is and it's becoming to be. But despite our worst and best efforts, despite our loudest and softest opinions, the church is meant to look and to sound and even to smell like Jesus. Jesus whose birth, life, death, and even resurrection are this miracle and it's a miracle that to everyone, it didn't always look like we thought it should look. It looked powerless and vulnerable and unimportant. And so our sermon series is this, Jesus and his church belonging to an ordinary looking miracle. 
And that's what we are. That's what we're dealing. And this week's passage is a great underline, a great reintroduction to Ephesians because it really is getting at the heart of this. It's all about the mystery, the mystery of how God and his unsearchable riches and immeasurable power are displayed in a weakness that looks defeated. That's such a wonderfully interesting mystery. We're going to unpack that this morning. But before we do that, let's go, let's go to the Lord in prayer for our time together in these words from Ephesians chapter 3. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you uh, for this time. Uh, it was a real warm to my heart to study this this morning, um, to remember your words to us, uh, the precious promises um, amidst a storm uh, that we all feel. And Lord, uh, I know every single one of us, if we took a, a poll on a scale of one to 10, how tired we are of uh, different elements in, in life. I just have to mention the word COVID and, and most of us would have a, a strong emotional reaction. And you know that, you know where we are with life, with you, with church, with your scriptures. And would you meet us there? Don't leave us alone, please. Come alongside us by your spirit and your word and fill us richly. Open our mouths wide so that we can partake, so that we can swallow down whole the truth and the glorious, unsearchable riches of your gospel, of the treasure in Jesus Christ. Make us the richer for it. Change our very desires by it. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Several of you know this, but for the last I don't know, a couple years, um, our family, the Druin family, has been fully immersed in all things Harry Potter. Um, we have read word for word all of the books, and we have watched the movies, all eight movies, one each Friday movie nights at a, at a time. And uh, so I was excited recently to click on an article, uh, clickbait, yes, I was baited, um, and it was about uh, the actor Alan Rickman, who played the character Severus Snape. Rickman was one of the few actors I think actually lived up to the role um, in terms of how I'd visualized it watching, reading the books. And I was interested though, because until this article and the several other that I clicked on afterwards and went down the rabbit hole into the internet, um, until several days ago, I didn't know that Alan Rickman almost quit his role. I don't know if you knew that. Between the first movie, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, uh, oh, sorry, in the Sorcerer's Stone, and the second movie, The Chamber of Secrets, between those two movies, Rickman had a real crisis and, and thought about quitting the role. According to an interview with Rickman before he died, he did not want to return to play the character of Severus Snape because he came across, he thought that the, the character was just this kind of all dressed in black, over serious bully to, to Harry, and Rickman felt that Snape, in his own words, was nothing more than an unchanging costume. But before he quit the role, Alan Rickman did something pretty interesting. He chose to approach J.K. Rowling. He went to the author of the Harry Potter series, and Rickman said to J.K. Rowling, something to the effect of, I think I need to know what happens. I think I need to know what happens. And that is, Alan Rickman wanted to know, needed to know the future of Snape's story. This actor was asking this, his story's author, is it worth it? Is it worth it to play this role? 
And here's where I need to give you a spoiler alert. If you have not read or watched Harry Potter, you can cover your ears. I will not be offended. Uh, but J.K. Rowling, who had published only the first three books of the entire series at that point, told Rickman a mystery. One tiny left, uh, tiny piece of left of field information that Severus Snape had always loved Harry's mother, Lily. And so Snape would risk absolutely everything, including his very life, to protect Harry. And according to Rickman, this small bit of information made him stay with the character and to completely change how he understood his role and how to play it. It helped me think that Snape was more complicated and that the story was not getting to be, not going to be as straight down the line as everybody thought it was going to be. And not only was Snape a double agent and a very good one at that, but he was suffering for a purpose bigger than how he felt in the present moment. He was suffering for Lily and for Harry's glory. Like Alan Rickman with the role of Severus Snape, the Ephesian church was losing heart. And I'd imagine mid-January 2022, many of us are also in that place. We can relate. The Ephesians looked around them at a city and even churches filled with cold indifference or heated to a boil holier than thou, Jews and Greeks and Romans. And they wondered about the role they were supposed to play in this story, in God's story. And these Ephesians were looking around and, and at Paul and they were asking the question, is it worth it? Is this whole Christian thing worth it? Is this whole living in community, intentionally Christian church thing worth it? Is what Jesus is asking of me personally, right here, right now, worth it? And like J.K. Rowling, Paul decides now is the time. Now is the time to let the Ephesians and all of us in on more of God's story. The mystery, one tiny left of field piece of information about something unsearchably big. The always of Jesus' love. And Paul intends for us, even with this small slice of information, to completely change our lives, completely change the way we understand our role to play. And the suffering that we can feel moment by moment whether it's the painful to navigate relationships or the feelings of just complete isolation, whether it's the economic and physical and social cost of COVID-19 and what it has taken from us, or maybe just feels like a general fatigue and self-denial of yet another long, long season. Paul's telling us, don't lose heart. Jesus' suffering, Paul's sufferings, our sufferings, and God's story, all suffering has a glorious purpose. And so in Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 13, Paul's really giving us three tiny left of field glimpses of God's always glory. Three insights to help us stay in the game, stay in the roles that we're called to play right now. First, verses one through six, Paul shares us with us the privileges of God's mystery. 
Second, verses seven through nine, Paul shares with us the riches of God's grace. And third, and finally, in verses 10 through 13, Paul shares with us the worth of God's wisdom. So that's what we're gonna look at, the privileges of God's mystery, the riches of God's grace, and the worth of God's wisdom. We're looking at that order, and that sermon outline is probably projected behind me, and certainly in your e-bulletin. But let's begin with, God, with Paul's first given glimpse of God's story, his always glory, and the privileges of God's mystery. So if you look with me at verses one and two of chapter three, uh, you'll read this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given for me, to me for you. And did you notice that was kind of a confusing sentence? There's a dash there in the English translation. It's at the very end of verse one. Paul, a prisoner in Christ, of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, dash, hyphen, right? And, if you, and it's like, if you've heard the Bible, and he says, of course you've heard of my stewardship, and then he kind of launches into a whole other thing. This is a plan, this is a digression. Paul is so rudely interrupting himself about his story, and if you have a Bible, you can look down, and you can start to see he picks back up where he was going in verse 1, later in verse 14 of chapter 3. And he says again, he repeats that line, for this reason, then he launches into a prayer. And really, Paul's stopping himself to explain something, an obstacle that has tripped up his mostly Gentile audience in Ephesus. And it's really the same thing that can trip us up too. Paul's imprisonment for them. But in order to explain just how he, Paul, could be in prison for all the non-Jewish people in the world, Paul has to explain the mystery, verses three through five. But what is the mystery? Well, if you're with us two weeks ago now, you would understand that the mystery is this, Jesus Christ in you all. That is the fact of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were promised in the Old Testament and prophecies, but hidden in a not so clear way. But now the God-man Jesus has come. It's a fact. He's been clearly revealed and unveiled in history for all of us to see on a cross and come from an empty tomb. And the significance of Jesus Christ in us and as individuals, but also as God's people, the church, that significance was also in hints and guesses in the Old Testament. But now it's in obvious answers. Our destiny is wrapped up with Jesus' destiny. And Jesus' destiny is wrapped up with you and I. He's with us. He's on our team. We're on his team. Where he goes, you go. Where you go, he goes. What he gets, you get. What you get, he gets and takes on. And this means that all of our present sufferings, disease, death, rejection, loneliness, feeling smothered, all of these things will lead to a future glory, just like Jesus. But I'm going to get, I'm, before I get ahead of myself, go all the way to verse 13 already. I just want to pause and consider what this mystery means for history, right? It's a big claim. It's a claim that says this, Jesus has not only cracked open and recentered the world's timeline. Think about that. The way that we reckon time has changed because of Jesus. B.C., before Christ. A.D., after Christ, literally in the year of our Lord Jesus. 
Jesus also gave history a trajectory, though. He gave it an end goal, the new heavens and the new earth. And this brilliant ending makes it a story. A story requires an ending. And it's his story, God's story. Dare I say it, history is his story. We've heard that a lot of times, but it's true. And according to verse six, this means that Gentiles are fellow heirs of the new creation ending. Who? Why? Because we, by the way, most of us are Gentiles. Most of us are non-Jewish in heritage. We are also fellow members, limbs and vital organs and Jesus's body, the church. And we're also fellow partakers, partakers of the promise of Jesus Christ. We get what he promised. It's ours. And if we believe that and live into that reality, this view of history changes our very personal lives, doesn't it? Think about it. We no longer have to purchase significance. Your significance is not in your square footage. Your cars, your clothes, the experiences that you can brag about or I can brag about. We no longer have to earn affection at work or home or online. Significance and affection are for free privileges of God's great mystery. That's what Paul's saying. And Paul gets at what can feel like a paradox, right? It's so weird. We in Christ Jesus feel so small, but we're so deeply privileged. And Paul's using this loaded word to describe that paradox. It's this word stewardship in verse two. On purpose, Paul does not call himself Lord or master. He could have used the word kurios, but instead he uses the Greek word oikonomos, which is a fancy way of saying he's a household manager. He's a steward, a spiritual steward, a spiritual administrator, an admin assistant to God, okay? Who has a very, very big chain of keys. Okay, and this big chain of keys, the spiritual stewardship, these keys are not primarily meant to lock and unlock the door, the front door of God's house. Look, ministers like Paul, ministers like me, we're not just sort of like bouncers primarily or doorkeepers, okay? That's not our primary role. Ministers like Paul, as a minister, he holds the keys to the king's treasure room. That's what the key set's for. And he's excitedly grabbing us by the arm and, by the, and he's dragging us practically off of our feet to a thick, solid door. And that door slowly yields to his key so that we could stand there in the doorway, slack-jawed and amazed at what we get to see, pile upon pile of treasure. More than we could even take in. The unsearchable riches of Christ or the riches of God's grace, our second main point. Really, verses seven through nine, Paul is describing the Christian life in a way that we usually don't. We don't do this. Listen to how the Bible commentator Tom Wright puts it. Both Christian and non-Christian have forgotten or perhaps never known that what can appear from the outside is a tedious, humdrum, religious existence, all that going to church, all that saying of prayers and trying to be holy, 
is in fact meant to be a delighted exploration of untold and inexhaustible riches. Being a Christian is meant to consist of going from room to room in the king's palace, relishing the beauty and splendor of it all, exploring the treasury of wisdom and of insight, of spiritual joys and of hopes that are there in Christ. Please don't miss the use of words that Paul does here. He puts two words together that we oftentimes don't. Unsearchable and riches. Unsearchable riches. And this is an image that's meant to both overwhelm and excite us. We're to become like children who've discovered a treasure so big, our plastic sand shovels can't uncover it. We, can, we can't even dig around it, but the joy of this discovery of the digging itself makes us quiver all over in excitement. And it's, it's a find that we can't help but talking about to everybody. And it's a, kind that we, it's a find that we can't help but say, grab a shovel and join in. But we can lose that childlike excitement so quickly, can't we? It's so easy. We live in a world of DIY. Do it yourself, right? Step-by-step how-to videos and TED Talks. Oh, I mastered that. I watched a 15-minute video on it. Show me the takeaway. Cash value. Give me an application all the time. We're constantly asking, but what do I do with this? What do I do with this? But sometimes, oftentimes, the scripture is asking a different question. It's asking us to bring to light what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? Verse nine, to simply savor it, to delightfully sip on Jesus, to take the time and to focus the attention like a favorite cup of coffee or a complex wine or flavorful bourbon. And that's the case here in Ephesians chapters one through three. You realize in all of those verses that we've read and we studied together to this point and then some, there's only one command. And the entire, all of those verses. <laughs> Remember is the command. <laughs> Remember. Chapter two, verse 11 makes me think of this story that the preacher and theologian Sinclair Ferguson has told before. He's younger and he's not very well known in the ministry yet, but he's got this great Scottish brogue and so people invite him to these conferences, I'm sure, and he's brilliant. And he's asked to preach at a college ministry conference for the weekend and after two sessions, the campus staff, uh, he's given two talks and the, and the campus staff asked to come meet with him in a private room. And he goes, I bet, be, I bet I'm in trouble. And sure enough, they gather around him and the small room off the main speaking area and these staff people had a look of serious concern and proceed to tell Sinclair that for two solid hours, you haven't told us a single thing for us to do. For two solid hours, you've not told us a single thing for us to do. And of course, Sinclair Ferguson is, feels embarrassed, but he correctly pointed out that the scriptures that he had been preaching for two hours did not say a single thing for them to do, okay? The Christian gospel is not about even a single thing to do. 
And so the gospel tells us plain, there's nothing we can do. But, and, God has invaded space and time to do something glorious for you, for helpless sinners like you and me. Therefore, if you're looking for something to do, the very first thing to do is to drink deeply from the fountain of God's free and unsearchable grace. This view of the Christian life centered on God's free grace is clearly Paul's view of the Christian life. Just look at how he anchors what he's saying in verses two and then again in verse seven. The mystery and even his own self-image, they hang on, on God's grace. <laughs> this is why Paul can say something that strikes us in the first 21st century. As such, he's got such poor self-talk, doesn't he? Look at this guy. I'm the very least of all the saints. Literally, I'm lesser than the least Christians. Eee. Really, Paul? You're the worst Christian? How can you talk about yourself that way? If you were Paul's friend, right? Think about, just put yourself in that place. And you heard him talk about himself that way and you thought maybe he's feeling that way too. What would you say? Would you feel the need to pump up his self-esteem a little bit? You know, would you reach over and sign his yearbook? Don't ever change. Or maybe you just like cough and look away because you had no idea what to say. Or maybe you would look deeply in his eyes and you would sing, you're perfect just the way you are. But Paul can talk this way about himself because in the words of Brian Chapel, he believes he's always in every dimension of his life a recipient of unconditional grace and never deserving of it, any of it. You see, Paul can be this radically humble and radically honest about his own self-image and about his failures. He can confess not just the socially acceptable sins. He can say, hey, I'm really angry. I'm jealous of your life. I'm greedy. Because he doesn't have to be big. He doesn't have to be larger than life. He doesn't have to be large and in charge in the eyes of other people. Paul, you, I, we get to be children with plastic sand shovels who've discovered a treasure that is the size of the beach. No, every single beach that ever was on the planet and then some. And our significance and purpose and affection shines through that mother load of treasure in as many places and as many ways as there are grains of sand in all of the world's beaches. That's how much significance and purpose and affection God has for us. We could scarcely take it in. And the truth is Jesus lived a radically honest and radical humility and he died a death and ended in a resurrection. And really this resurrection wasn't just of a life, it was of a reputation. Paul's gospel ministry tells us why this is so. Why this is so worth treasuring. By faith, what is true of Jesus is true of us. So we don't have to pretend our failures away anymore. How freeing is that? Just like his only begotten son, 
God the Father, the King of the universe, bends his ear to hear from us. Especially when our humility feels like humiliation. Especially when we've been wronged or dismissed. And according to verses 10 through 13, what is true on an internal, private, individual, me level, this is also true on an external, public, corporate, people level. We have the boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, Jesus. Verse 12, God is not just making, he's not just creating a singles ministry, right? Do you get this? He's not just sort of saying, Hey, single new life, single new life, single new life. Here's a better, different way to be a human. It's fascinating what he's doing. God is making a new plural society, a community. He's saying, here is a different, better way to be humans, plural. And in verse 10, God calls this new society of all things, the church. (laughs) And the church displays the watching world, the worth of God's wisdom, our third and final point. Like a child with a big idea that he just cannot shake loose from, Paul goes at it again and he describes God's wisdom once again as treasure. It's manifold and it's made known through the church of all things. The church is meant to be a precious, multi-sided piece of treasure. It's like a diamond and that diamond has those many edges and those many edges catch the light and they reflect back in a thousand different ways, the image of the beholder. And this is a metaphor for how God's church is to reflect back God's image and the images of thousands of different races and cultures and languages and jobs and political opinions and economic advantages and disadvantages and personalities in the world. And the church's intended diversity also questions how we approach fundamental things, like how do we grow and how do we change, right? Evangelism and discipleship is what we sometimes call that in the Christian world. A pastor friend of mine puts it really well, you solo, that is like you or just you and your wife, you can't do it all, not even for a single person. You just can't. That Christian or that would-be Christian, he needs a community, she needs a community of people to teach them. A pastor's knowledge of the Bible. A life life group leader's commitment to prayer. A single parent's lessons on patience. A recovering addict's belief in change that's possible. A child's sense of wonder. And let's flip the roles around you will make a much better decision about a very important point in your life by asking several, not just one godly person about it. Right? Doesn't that make sense? You need more than one person from one background with one set of strengths. All of us do. But this discussion of roles leads us smack to verse 13. Look at how Paul describes his own role in God's God's story. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Is what Paul suffering here, prison, is that really a better way of being human? 
And how in the world does our suffering lead to other people's glory? Or put it another way, is there an author of this life who like J.K. Rowling will make the role that you play and the suffering that comes with that role worth it? Is there? A clue comes in the Greek word that Paul uses for suffering here. This word is often used to describe a specific kind of pain. And that pain is, that's the pain of childbirth. That's where it's hidden in the Greek word. That is the suffering that all Christians undergo is like the contractions that a mother undergoes in delivering a baby. And you know this, right? A lot of you just recently experienced this, right? There's this moment, always a moment, usually right before the epidural, when the mom loses heart and she thinks, this is too much for me and it's never going to end the pain. And sometimes the dad feels this in a look or maybe it's a bone crushing hand grip or maybe it's actually shouted in the dad's face. Like, how could you do this to me? Regardless, in those, very, in those present moments, the woman does not believe that any of this, any of this, the morning sickness, the awkward sleeping pregnancy, the excruciating pain of delivery, um, you know, even the, the, sex le- the sex on monthly cycles, none of it's worth this kind of suffering. But then what happens every single time? What happens? In so many cases, even in this room, there's this final push. And it's a beautiful, wriggling, screaming baby that comes in the world, right? And after the Apgar tests and some cleaning, the precious newborn is laid on the mother's chest. And she thinks, all of it, all of it was absolutely worth it. She looks back on the suffering those contractions. She knows those contractions were the very means God used to push that baby out into the world. And over time, this is amazing, many mothers get up from that experience and they decide, I want another child. (laughs) Whatever you're going through right now, and I don't dare name it, whatever role you're being called to play in God's story, Jesus says, this is our, he says this of our present and future sufferings. It's from John. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have suffering now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take that joy from you. And that day, this is amazing, you will ask nothing of me. You see, our suffering asks this really good question. What could possibly worth the pain I'm feeling? What could be worth this? And Jesus calmly answers, I am. That's the only thing that's worth it. He is. He's worthy. And so we ask, is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? 
Is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy? Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? And the Jews and the Gentiles and the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, God himself with Paul shouting himself hoarse in the dirty, rotten prison straw, all of God's people and the angels of, of the heavenly host, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they all answer our question. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of this? They all answer, he is. He is. He's worthy. And that's what he's got. And that's what we've got. And that's the suffering that leads to glory. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this passage and this sermon. And Lord, I I just pray that people wouldn't feel yelled at. (laughs) Uh, But I also just pray that you would hear, we would hear you shouting from heaven. It's worth it. It's worth it. Thank you for the mystery, the unsearchable riches. Give us a taste, a glimpse. In Jesus' name, amen.